0: Much can be learned about prayer simply by observing the prayer life of Jesus. Today we focus our attention on the high priestly prayer that is solely and uniquely recorded for us in John's Gospel. This is the longest prayer that's recorded in sacred scripture of Jesus. Today we continue our sermon series entitled, I Pray." This morning, I simply want to talk to you about praying like Jesus. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it to John. Turn to John chapter 17. I'll be reading verses 1 to 26. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 17. Let us begin at verse 1. After Jesus said this, He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. But they are still in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now. The glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In this prayer, Jesus prays for himself and for others. That's a good, common model of prayer. Nothing wrong for you to pray for yourself. Nothing wrong for you to pray for others. This morning, I want you to take note of what Jesus prayed for himself and what Jesus prayed for others. It is John who seems to set the stage. When Jesus had said these things, he lifted his eyes toward the heavens and prayed. But these things that John refers to is a reference to the previous three chapters of teaching of our Lord. In John chapter 14, Jesus taught, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In John chapter 16, Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. I am going away from you, but when I go, I will send the paraclete, I will send the Holy Spirit, and he will guide you in all truth. After Jesus had taught these things, he lifted his eyes to the heavens and he prayed. He spent five verses praying for himself. He spent 21 verses praying for others. This morning, I want to suggest to you three characteristics of the prayer that Jesus had for himself and four characteristics of that prayer that he had for others. And I want to encourage you this morning to mimic the Messiah. I want to encourage you today to pray like Jesus. So first, in the prayer that Jesus prayed for himself, he began by addressing God as father. Now, this may sound elementary to us. But I promise you, in the first century, it was earth-shattering. No one ever referred to the majestic, merciful, sovereign creator of the universe as dad. Yet that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus refers to God Almighty as dad. He calls him father. This is not the first time that he's addressed God as father. Father. In the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, he said, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus will pray in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. It wasn't uncommon for the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to address the first person of the Trinity, God Almighty, as dad. This was pretty routine. It was quite common. Jesus would approach God and speak to him as father. And it is out of that relationship that Jesus had with God that you can talk to God as your dad. Now, many times when we hear a sermon on prayer, especially the prayers of Jesus, those sermons can be guilt-laden. Jesus prayed a lot. You don't pray enough. Jesus got up early to pray. You push the snooze button and neglect prayer. Jesus prayed all night long. You pray all of five minutes. And usually the punchline of sermons like this goes something like this. Since Jesus is perfect and he prayed so much, don't you think Since you are the scumbags of society, don't you think that you ought to pray even more? Now, I get the logic of those sermons. I understand that. But I can also tell you that guilt is a terrible motivator. If you are looking for long-lasting change behavior, guilt is a terrible way to motivate people to change. You may want your children to change behavior. You may want your coworkers to change behavior. You may want other church members to change behavior. And the worst way you can do it is to try to guilt them into doing it. Oh, guilt may work for the short term. But if you're looking for long lasting transformation, guilt is a terrible motivator. But gratitude. Now that's a good motivator gratitude has a way of motivating us for behavior that is long-term after all if you're going to attract some flies it is much better to use honey than a fly swatter because gratitude is a much better motivator than guilt and it's out of that gratitude that we have with God that we go to him in prayer because God knows everything I can talk to him about anything Because God knows me personally, I can speak to Him intimately. Because God calls me His child, I can call Him dad. It is out of gratitude, out of that relationship that we have with God, that we go to Him. Jesus comes in one of the most vulnerable spots in His life and ministry. He's here in this, what's called the high priestly prayer of Christ. He knows what's about to happen. He's about to be handed over and crucified, executed for your sins and mines. And when he goes to God, he simply addresses him as dad, father. Fundamentally, when you and I pray like Jesus, we approach God as father. Secondly, Jesus prayed for himself that he may suffer well. He said, my time has come. My hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. That's an interesting statement for Jesus to say, my hour has come. Because throughout John's gospel, the hour has not yet come. As early as John chapter two, Jesus is at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee and the wedding party runs out of wine. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, says to the attendants, Jesus can fix it. You just do whatever he tells you to do because Jesus, show him how you turn that water into wine trick. I want you to just do do whatever he tells you to do. And Jesus said, woman, why are you bothering me? Why are you involving me? my hour has not yet come. In John chapter seven, Jesus delays in going to the feast of tabernacles. And the reason is because he tells his disciples, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter eight, the Pharisees try to lay hands on Jesus and they cannot seize him. And the explanation is given simply because his hour had not yet come. And finally, here in John chapter 17, Jesus declares, my hour has come. What does he mean by that? He means my hour of suffering, my hour of inevitable crucifixion, my hour of God forsakenness and abandonment, my hour of taking the wrath of God's holy hostility towards sinful humanity, my hour of pain and suffering has come. My hour has finally come. In order for me to uh, receive the crown, I've got to go through the cross and my hour has now come for me to be declared King of Kings, Lord of Lords. My hour has come. Now you and I are not Christ, but certainly we know what it is to have an hour of suffering to come in our life. Maybe the hour of suffering comes to you when the boss calls you in after 27 years of employment and he says your services are no longer needed and you realize that this decision by the boss is now going to financially cripple your family. Your hour of suffering has come. Maybe it's when you sit down and the doctor is across the table and he tells you your three-year-old son has leukemia. Your hour of suffering has come. Maybe it's when your 22-year-old son comes home from college, sits you down, and says to mom and dad, uh, I am gay. For years, I've had a same-sex attraction. And uh, and now, I just wanted to let you know, I'm just kind of coming out of the closet, and your son tells you that he believes that God made him this way, and he's pleased with this decision. Your hour of suffering has come. Maybe it's when your spouse of some 53 years passes away and you stand at his casket paralyzed as if life is passing you by. Maybe it's when the doctor tells you, your cancer's back and I can't do anything else. You've received all the chemo you can receive. I've given you all the radiation you can handle. Surgery is not an option. I don't know what else to do. Your hour of suffering has come. It's never a question of will suffer come. It's always a question of when will it come your hour of suffering will come. Most of us spend the majority of our life in prayer asking God to keep us from our hour of suffering. We don't want to experience it. We don't want to have to go through it. We don't want pain and heartache. We don't want suffering, sickness, and sadness. We don't want our hour of suffering to come. And when our hour does come, then some of us get mad at God. Some of us get frustrated at the Lord. Some of us wag our finger in the face of God. And we say, God, how could you? How could you? Why did you? And we get angry when our hour of suffering comes. I think sometimes we get so angry at God when our hour of suffering comes is because we have far too many phony preachers that are in our culture and in our world today who communicate that as long as you have faith, then you'll be healthy and wealthy. And as long as you have faith, then you have a God in heaven who wants to give your life, uh, make it comfortable and convenient. Need I remind you that our savior was a homeless man. He never owned a home. In fact, I don't even think Jesus owned his own bed. He said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. I take that to mean there were times that the rocks were his pillow, the skies were his blankets. Take that to mean that he's telling us that sometimes the animal kingdom will have it better than us as followers of Christ. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus did not live a long, luxurious life. He did not die at a, at, a, at a ripe old age. No, his life was snuffed out at 33 years of age. And Jesus died not just natural causes, but he died as his life was executed, crucified on a cross. If God is in the business of making life comfortable for his followers, then God the Father owes God the Son a huge apology. Jesus is praying and he's saying, Father, help me to suffer well. My hour has come. The inevitable crucifixion is right on the horizon. I am going to suffer. I am going to die. I am going to experience God-forsakenness my hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. The word glory means to heap honor upon. Help me to heap honor upon you as I suffer well in this life. I think that God the Father answered the prayer of God the Son. I think that he answered it because in Mark's gospel, at the very end, you find the Roman centurion and he looks up at the cross as Jesus is breathing his last, giving up his ghost. He bounds his head and he dies. And the Roman centurion looks up and says, surely this man was a son of God. Somehow, in the way that Jesus suffered, somehow, in the way he experienced agony, somehow, in this way of how he endured this God-forsakenness and this sadness and this heartbreak and heartache, somehow, how Jesus experienced that, the Roman centurion just saw it and said, surely this man was a son of God. Oh, my friends, may the watching world see us as we handle our unemployment. In our disease, in our sickness, in our setbacks, in our broken relationships. May the watching world see how we handle our hour of suffering. And may they say, surely that man is a child of God. Surely that woman is a darling daughter of the king. I can tell simply by the way they suffer well. This is how Jesus prays for himself. He begins by addressing God as father. And secondly, he prays that he may suffer well. Is this how you pray for yourself? This is how Jesus prays. It's never a question of will we suffer, but when we suffer, help us to suffer well. The third characteristic of Jesus' prayer for himself, he says, help me to finish well. In verse four, I have completed the task that you've given me to do. Jesus says, I have completed the task, O Father, that you have given me to do. The third characteristic of the prayer that Jesus prayed for himself is he said, Father, help me to finish well. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to give life more abundant and free. And nothing was gonna derail him. Nothing was gonna distract him. He was not gonna allow Satan. He was not going to allow even Simon Peter Nothing was going to distract him from his course of Calvary. In fact, in Luke chapter nine, verse 51, it says that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He had determination in his step. There was uh, power in his demeanor. Nothing was going to distract him. Why? Because he had a God-given mission. Now, once again, you and I don't have the same God-given mission as Jesus. We don't save anybody. But certainly, God has given us a job to do. God has given us a task. God has given us a purpose. We speak to each other how we are here on purpose and for a purpose. That our purpose as a congregation is to make disciples for global impact. And certainly we are to know God and enjoy him forever. Certainly we exist to glorify the Lord. We have God-given tasks. We have God-given jobs. We have God-given responsibilities. And when we pray for ourselves, let us pray, God, help me to finish well. The last thing I want is to be a statistic. You know, just another one of those pastors that doesn't finish well. The last thing I want for you is to be another statistic. You know, another one of those church members that just doesn't finish well. I don't know about you, but I can learn a lot from the prayer that Jesus offered in John chapter 17, this high priestly prayer. He did pray for himself. There were three things that he prayed for himself. He addressed God as father. And when he addressed God as father, he said, help me to suffer well, help me to finish well. My friend, there's nothing wrong for you to pray for yourself so long as you pray like Jesus, praying the things that Jesus prayed. But Jesus only spent five verses praying for himself. He spent 21 verses praying for others. There's a pretty good lesson in that too, don't you think? That when we come to God in prayer, that while there's nothing wrong for us to pray for ourselves, we ought to pray for ourselves about 20% of the time and then pray for others 80% of the time. That's how Jesus divides this thing up. That's how Jesus prays. Jesus spends four times more praying for others than he prays for himself. Does that describe your prayer life? This is how Jesus prays. So let me quickly offer four characteristics that Jesus used as he prayed for others. First, he prayed that God would keep them faithful. He prayed that God would keep them faithful. In verse 12, he makes reference that uh, I will no longer be in this world. But while I was here, I kept them. I guarded them. I protected them. I haven't lost anyone, Jesus says, except the Son of Destruction, which was doomed to destruction to fulfill the Scripture. The them that Jesus refers to are His disciples. I have kept them faithful. I have guarded them. I've protected them while I'm here on earth. But now I'm not going to, I will no longer be on earth. And so God, I commit them unto you, Father. And I ask for you to keep them faithful. When I read these words, they bring great comfort to me. It's brought some concern to others. This is comforting to me because I realized that That my life is in the safe, secure hands of God. That God protects his children. That God uh, keeps his believers. He guards and protects his disciples. Oh, but some people have focused on that word lost. When Jesus says, I've not lost anyone except that one, that son of destruction. That's caused some people to ask the question, is it possible If Jesus lost one, can he lose others? Is it possible for you to lose your salvation? My friends, I want to answer with a resounding no. It's not possible. The reason I can say that is because I submit to you this morning that the son of destruction is Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver, he never was a genuine believer. He was one who was around the disciples, but he was not a true disciple. He heard the words of Christ, but he never heeded the words of Christ. Oh, he probably did some good things from time to time, but he never had signs of transformation in his life. He lived in the right zip code. He just didn't live at the right address. He was close, but not one of them. And oh, my friends, When I think about Judas Iscariot, my heart is grieved because I realize that it's possible for there to be a Judas or two, even in this faith family. It's possible for there to be imposters. It's it's possible for a person to be in church and around believers and not be a true believer. It's possible for people to hear the word of God every single week and not heed the word of God every single week. Oh, it's possible. Because of the influence of a Christian society and a faith family, it's possible for you to do some good things from time to time and still not have signs of transformation in your life. Jesus says, Father, keep them faithful. Jesus is reminding us that he is the giver Of eternal life. He defines eternal life as knowing the one true God and knowing Jesus Christ, whom he sent. According to Jesus, that this eternal sign of transformation, that this this gift of salvation is based all in knowing God as the one true God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all based on that relationship. To know Christ is to be known. To know him is to be known by God. If you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have the gift of salvation. And that gift that God gives you, it cannot be lost. After all, just think about the words. Jesus describes it as eternal life. and eternal life cannot be lost, for if it was lost, it would not be eternal, Right? Okay, you're not with me, but I'm telling you, okay, eternal life cannot be lost because if it was lost, then it would no longer be eternal, right? So Jesus says, this gift that I give is eternal life. Those who have it, have it forever, it is everlasting. It is eternal life. John will say in 1 John chapter 5, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Judas Iscariot, the son of destruction, did not have Jesus as his personal Savior. Therefore, he did not have life. But if you, if you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then you have eternal life, a life that cannot be taken from you. Jesus prays, "O oh, Father, Keep them faithful. Keep them faithful to the salvation that you've given. Keep them faithful until the very end. Keep them faithful. One of the greatest things you can pray for the person to the right of you, to the left of you, in front of you, behind you is God, keep them faithful. Keep them faithful. In the midst of what they're going to have to endure, in the persecution they're going to have to face, in the inevitable distractions along the way, keep them faithful in your salvation. Keep them faithful in your guarded, protected hand of salvation. Keep them faithful. Jesus prays this for others. You would do well to pray this for others. Secondly, Jesus prays, uh, Father, keep them joyful. Father, keep them joyful. We live in a world that has so many opportunities for sin. And the temptation to sin can be likened uh, to baited hooks. Oh, they are dangled out in front of you and they promise life (laughs) and they only deliver death. We live in a culture and, and we believe in the American society that we have certain inalienable rights. Among them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yet most Americans are distressed, depressed, and disillusioned with life. <laughs> and Jesus comes and he says, listen, I came so that they may have joy. I came so that, they, so that their joy may be complete. He speaks of this in verse 13 and following. He says, help the fullness of my joy to be in them. Oh God, keep them joyful. It is Nehemiah who says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's the psalmist who says that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. It's David who says, oh God, please restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore the joy of your salvation. It was the angels who said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I have good news of great joy which shall be for all the people. To know Jesus is to know joy. It's a joy that is constant. It's a joy that's eternal. Now, Jesus did not come just to make us happy. No, Jesus came to make us holy. But in the process of knowing Jesus and all of his splendor and all of his holiness, there is joy that erupts. Happiness is depending on the happenings that are around us. And our life with Jesus does not rise and fall with the stock market. It does not rise and fall with the outcome of a football game. It does not rise and fall with circumstances that are around you. To know Jesus is to know a constant joy that the world can't take away. It's a joy that your disease cannot debilitate. It's a joy that your cancer can't cripple. It's a joy that not even your sin can snuff out. It's a joy that this world can't waste away. It's a joy that's eternal. To know Jesus is to know this joy. So Jesus prays for others, and He says, "God, keep them joyful. Is that what you pray for your spouse? Oh God, keep Him joyful. I know what He's going through at work. Is that what you pray for? When you say, "Oh Lord, keep her joyful, I know all the stress that she has on her plate? Is that what you pray for when you're praying for your friends, your family members, your other coworkers, your other church members, people all surrounding you today? Do you pray for one another? Do you pray for me? Do I pray for you? Oh God, keep them joyful. It's not that we just slap a smile on our face and grin and bear it. No, it's not that somehow we just mask over our feelings of pain and suffering. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is just saying, hey, keep them joyful. Help them to know the joy That will lift them up even when their surroundings are falling apart. Keep them joyful. Third, Jesus says, oh, Father, keep them holy. Verses 17 and 19, Jesus references the word sanctify them. Sanctify them. The word sanctify means the process of holiness, and holiness means to be set apart. Jesus prays to the Father, please. Make them, keep them holy. How is your holiness cultivated? In the high priestly prayer, it's according to the word that's planted inside of you. Jesus makes reference to this word of God. In verse six, in verse eight, in verse 14, and in verse 17. On four occasions, he references the word that's been taught to them, the word that they believe, the word that I've given to them, the word of truth that guides them. It is this word of God that sanctifies us. When you and I neglect the simple reading of the word of God, we neglect tremendous power in our lives. It is the Word of God that prunes us. It's the Word of God that empowers us. It's the Word of God that corrects us. We are Bible-believing, Bible-reading, Bible-living believers. And oh, the neglect that we have and and just the the weakness that we show when we simply neglect to read the Word of God. Can I just offer just a simple suggestion to you today if you don't do this already? Just every day make a commitment. I'm going to read a chapter of Scripture today. Just start with a given book. You can start in Genesis if you want to. Start in Matthew if you want to. Start anywhere if you want to. But just start reading a book of the Bible. And just read a chapter a day. And if you want to add some accountability to it, just get somebody else to read with you. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a grandchild, a friend, a coworker. Not that they have to sit side by side and read it with you, but you just know, hey, on this day, we're all we're both gonna read Joshua chapter 12 and tomorrow we're at Joshua chapter 13. And at some point, we're just gonna hold each other accountable. I promise you, you just read the word of God <laughs> and it will have power over your life. Just read it and it will prune you. Just read it and it will sanctify you. Just read it and it it has an uncanny ability. That as you read it, you experience something that day and your mind goes back and says, wow, God just talked to me about that earlier this morning when I was reading the scripture. Just keep them holy. How is God the Father gonna keep his children holy? Through his word. Sanctify us through your word. Is this how we pray for each other? Oh God, keep my brother in the book. Oh God, keep my sister in the word. Help her to have a hunger for the holy things of God. Help him to just be eager. He, he just has an itch. He can't do anything until he gets up and just digests that word. Eat the scroll. That's what the Lord said to Ezekiel. That's what God says to us. This is the primary way that God is gonna keep us holy. You and I both know that out of all the characteristics of God, it is his holiness that's only given in the superlative fashion of holy, holy, holy. We hear this in Isaiah, we hear this in Revelation. It is the angels of God that declare that God is holy, holy, holy. Certainly he is loving, certainly he's merciful, certainly he's forgiving, but nowhere in scripture do you find a portrait of God where it says love, 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 or grace, 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 or mercy, 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 or forgiving, 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 but clearly in multiple places of scripture you find the seraphs and the angels around the throne and they declare God is holy, holy, holy. We are to be holy. We are to be set apart. And how is God going to do that? According to the high priestly prayer of Jesus, he's going to do it through his word. Fourth. The fourth characteristic that Jesus prays for others. He says, Father, keep them unified. Keep them unified. I'm praying this not just for these disciples. I'm praying this for all who will come to faith based on their message. This is remarkable, but when Jesus was praying this high priestly prayer, he was thinking about you. He was praying for me in this very moment. He was praying for all who would come to faith in Christ. Keep them unified. Keep them united. May they be one. As Father, you and I are one. As I am in you, as you are in me, as they are in us, keep them one, keep them united. There are so many things that divide us, so many things that diversify us. We are divided by gender and generation. We're we're divided by socioeconomic status. We're, We're divided by political persuasion. We are divided by college football affinity. We're divided by our goals and dreams, our likes, our dislikes. We're divided by our employment or unemployment. We're divided by a host of things. But Jesus says, Father, keep them united. Keep them united. And why? The purpose of being set apart is to be sent. The purpose of our unity is missional. Keep them united so that the world will know that you sent me. Jesus is not saying keep them united so they just never have a bad business meeting. He, he's not saying keep them united just so they can all grin and bear it and pat each other on the back and sing kumbaya. He's not saying keep them united just because I don't want people bickering in the church. He's not saying any. He's saying keep them united so they'll be singly focused on the mission so that the world will know that you sent me. Keep them united. You know, the devil heard this prayer as well. And the devil knows how to mess in our business. All he has to do is plant seeds of division. All he has to do is plant seeds of distraction, keeping us distracted from our God-given gospel mission. And the devil says, that's all I've got to do to distract the church. And Jesus says, I am praying for you, church. I am praying that you will be united. Why? Not so that everybody can just look and say, wow, that's a happy church. No, so people can look and say, wow, that's a focused church. That is a missional church. That church exists to make disciples for global impact and they know who they are and they know what their business is and they know what they're about. This is how Jesus prays. Is this how you pray? Nothing wrong for you to pray for yourself. In fact, I would encourage it. You need to pray for yourself. I pray for myself. And when I pray, I go to God as father because he knows everything. I can talk to him about anything. He's my dad and I'm his son. So I go to him and I call him father. And I go and I say, Lord, please help me to suffer well. So that when I suffer, the watching world will see me and say, wow, surely that man is a son of God. And father, help me to finish well. I don't want to be another stat. I want to be one that finishes well. Nothing wrong with you praying for yourself. And there's nothing wrong with you praying for others. In fact, I would encourage it. You need to pray for others. And what do you need to pray for? Look around, the people that are around you. What are you praying for them about? I'll give you four suggestions. Why don't you pray that God will keep them faithful? Why don't you pray that God will keep them joyful? Why don't you pray that God will keep them holy? And why don't you pray God will keep them united? When I read this prayer, it drives me to my knees. Because I want to pray like Jesus. I want to Mimic the Messiah. I I, want to pray the way Jesus prays. And when I get done trying to pray like Jesus, then it causes me to, to sing and shout and to say, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he can love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I don't know about you, but I read this prayer. This prayer that's uniquely and solely recorded in John's gospel. And Jesus teaches us something very valuable about prayer. It drives us to our knees. And then we stand up in total amazement that the infinite God of the universe invites us to pray. And he cares so much about this prayer thing that he shows us how to pray in Jesus Christ. So I think that we would do well if we just prayed like Jesus. So this morning I invite you to come and pray. Now, pray for yourself. Pray for others. If you pray for yourself, uh, don't let that dominate your prayer life. I mean, Jesus only prayed 20% for himself and 80% for others. So take some time to pray for yourself, but also take a lot of time to pray for others. That other could be your spouse, your wayward child. your grandson. Maybe the others is the person in front of you, behind you. You may not even know what they're going through, but this morning, we're just going to pray like Jesus. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you that you invite us to come and pray. The altar's open. I pray that the altar's full. Lord Jesus, I pray and invite your children to come and to pray like you, Father, there's one here who does not know you as Savior. And Lord, I pray that they'll pray that powerful prayer of salvation. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, God, I pray that if sins need to be confessed, that they are laid here at the altar. I pray that if intercession is needed for family members and friends that are wayward, I pray that right now we will wage war on their behalf. Oh, Father, hear us as we pray like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.